So, you're looking for something different. Well, you found it. Right here with expat entrepreneur Jewel Daniels. Pushing boundaries on the solopreneur journey, where we're all about learning to build beyond just business. Let's get it. Hey, it's so nice to be with you today on the solopreneur journey. I'm Jewel Daniels, head of Daniels Communications Global, a leadership development firm that specializes in executive coaching, cultural competency, and of course, developing the best in you. I'm also the author of four books, with my latest being Three Sides of Every Crisis. It's a really important book that talks about how do you find opportunities in the midst of a crisis by learning to adjust your perspective and to pivot. And that's what we're going to dive into here on the Solopreneur Journey. This show is all about reaching out to those who are single, shingle, one-person enterprises that are starting at the starting line, but are running the race towards something spectacular. That's why we say it's all about building beyond just business, because building a business, being a solopreneur, transitioning to an entrepreneur, and becoming a business owner means that you have to practice everything from being a good leader, to understanding how to collaborate, price your goods and services, and even practicing excellent emotional intelligence. So it sounds like a lot. It's going to be so good. So this is what we do. We invite entrepreneurs to come on our show to share their stories, to talk about how they're getting through this crisis. And then we also invite those who are doing exceptionally well, who have built their businesses from being a solopreneur to something extraordinary that can benefit you. So come on, take the ride. Here we go. The general world of learning or education is really about knowledge. And uh, many people essentially market their ability to give or help people get knowledge. So whether they're running ed tech or technology or learning businesses, or bluntly, whether they are a math tutor at night for nine-year-olds, um, you know, we're in a world where knowledge is one of the big commodities and one of the big values. So because you you started with that concept, how do you see that emerging? How do you see, we know how that can be beneficial, but in this new climate of technology, which is definitely useful to us, there are some areas in which technology is not available. So how do we work yeah. on bridging the gap in those cases? Well, I, I think technology is like climate. You know, it's it's different around the world. Um, I will share that we've watched, even in very third world poor areas, that we've watched more people able to access and and use mobile tech than will probably ever have a, a laptop or a desktop or even a tablet. Yes. So I'm um, I'm somewhat optimistic is the wrong word. I I think that the mobile connection is going to become pretty widely available. And obviously there are exceptions to that. Hopefully they live in countries where, you know, the view that bandwidth is as important as air, you know, will mm. happen. Once again, it depends on the market economy. It depends on the how much sense of freedom there is in that world. Uh, but I don't think that our governments can block what is the inevitable climate of of people being connected, you know, because they're yes. they're they grew up in Senegal, but they're working in France or they, you know, they came from Jamaica. They lived in Miami. They're back to Jamaica, but they do a pro a program in Panama. Like all of those things are are part of our new reality. And yeah. uh, what I what I do believe, and I think this is true, is that knowledge is one of the things that makes people hungry and thirsty and curious. Mm -hmm. And so even years ago, years ago, like 20 years ago, when we had a conversation about the One Child, One Laptop program, which was a, mm -hmm. a great dream that every kid around the world would have a $100 laptop, well, that didn't happen, but I've gone to uh, many, many third world countries and you'll watch 
one kid will have an old computer and seven people, and that kid could be 12 or 42, seven people will be learning from that, around that. So I think technology to allow us to connect to people is pretty contagious. And um, it's, it, somehow people will get to it at different levels of sophistication and the like, but they'll get to it. I think that's a really valid point. Uh, I'm going to make this point that I want you to talk to a little bit about how your company started and what's um, the most important thing that you've seen change since the um, growth of technology in our learning space. Um, but it's an interesting point because in countries like Jamaica, which is considered a developing country, I don't call it a third world, it's a developing country, the average wage is somewhere between four to $600 US dollars a month. But as you said, everyone is walking around with a smartphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we are at a moment where, um, you know, people will get what they need. And I've been to many third world countries, you know, I, we distributed mosquito nets, you know, in Mali, you know, uh, but you found really, really poor people would find a way to get to water because water was what they needed. And one way or another, they would find a way to get to food, or at least for their children. You know, I think technology is in that zone. And what's interesting, if you go into the third world, they're actually more progressive about their use of technology for citizen access than we are. So, you know, I was in uh, Rwanda and I bought a, um, a shirt made. And the guy said, okay, pay with your phone. And I go, I, don't, I can't do that in the US. And he said, what do you mean you can't do it? And so I finally figured out a way to pay him through WeChat in China to come over, to come back, you know. And he looked at me, he said, you're from the US and I'm from Rwanda, you know. So um, I think we're at a time of change where people will find technology. I want my listeners to understand how you got to this place of, of creating this niche for yourself and what right. drove the passion behind it. Well, one of my first pieces of advice is don't focus on the business, focus on yourself. Uh, almost everybody who I've met who has built, managed and run successful businesses from uh, the average person you might meet to, I've spent time with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and other folks. Um, businesses start because you have a desire and a passion to do something. And that do something may be to do work. Uh, it may be to solve a technology problem. It may be to uh, be able to bake wonderful bread and share it with other people. So my story begins with me, not with my business. Uh, I am a geek. I'm a nerd. I was a geek and a nerd when I was a teenager. Uh, I early on got involved with technology in my high school. I, I was one of the first people to use the emerging computers in 1996. Um, and I fell in love and found that I had a passion for three things, for uh, what technology could do and how that was developing, uh, how we could uh, use technology to learn things, to uh, teach things, to, to get smarter. And the third one was uh, how we could actually grow the skills of people to do their jobs. So, Joel, I don't know how, but I had these three things in my head, you know, in oh. at age 18, at age 19, at age 21. Wow. Uh, now, I didn't have a company then. I did a series of jobs uh, that allowed me to do something. But every time I had a job and I had one job that had nothing to do with technology, but somehow I was able to work things around that I got an early mainframe computer terminal. I, I, I didn't lie, but I, you know, I was more excited about that than what the job was. Um, and so I always saw that technology was a multiplier for what I wanted, but that I brought a unique piece to it, which was how would technology and education shake hands? Now, it's always been there. You know, we had the a film strip projector, or we had, a, you know, a microscope in the lab. But once we came into that world of microcomputers, 
a whole new world came up and later on when the internet came on. So that was my passion. I tried a few jobs. I got fired from a few of them. It's good to get fired because you learn yeah. what you're not good you at. Away from what good you're not at good, at. Passion, good at my yeah. passion, but yeah. lousy at being an employee. <laughs> and the person who fired me said, uh, Elliot, you suck as an employee. I go, thank you for telling me that. She said, <laughs> you should work for yourself. And uh, and so, Jewel, I, I came to the decision probably by about age 24 or 25 that I needed to work for myself. I still didn't think I would be a business. I'd be working for myself the way a painter paints for themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. As you get into it, you realize, yes, you actually, if you're working for yourself, could be a business. And uh, so I was a business with an employee of one. And I, I grew my passion. Now, I actually over time grew the business and I figured out how to be an entrepreneur in that business. But what I want to say to your listeners, don't say, I'm going to start a company. Go say, I'm going to do my passion. And then you'll build up a company around that passion. And I think that's, uh, that's the largest takeaway that people might have for me today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that is great. And so over the years, um, from the three things that drove you, how did you get this focus in the L&D space and the e-learning? And how did you become the father of it all? Well, um, my goal was to, this will sound egotistical or strange. I met with actually a, a really, really good friend from, from college, and he's still one of my best friends and business partners. Uh, and, and we were trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And we were in his apartment in Syracuse with flip charts and we were talking. And he looked at me, he said, Elliot, you need to become the leading expert in a field that nobody knows is important yet. Those were the words. Elliot, you need to become the leading expert from something that nobody thinks is important. So you're now the leading expert in it because nobody thinks it's important. And I took no. that away. And that's mm. what I set out to do. Now, I, being a leading expert to me was not being better than other people, but it was being able to view that I could have a business transaction around my expertise. And so then I looked at different ways I could do that. Ironically, my second aha slash failure is I didn't want to become a consultant. You know, a lot of people become consultants. And the reason I didn't want to become a consultant is I didn't want to have to go out every day and try to sell another day of me. That's the nerd in you, which means you're probably That's a nerd in me. Yeah. And yeah. so I did things that were just part of my passion. I wrote a book yeah. on computer training. I had a friend from my high school who actually invented the spreadsheet, Bob Frankston. And I ended up being able to connect with a company that was now teaching people how to use spreadsheets at the very beginning. Uh, it led me to do some work with Microsoft on training and the like. And uh, all through this, my goal was I wanted to be at the center of the thinking about learning with my special value being I could talk technology. I understood technology. And, uh, and then I came to an interesting business decision. I said, I'd rather than being a consultant and selling a day of Elliot, I'd rather fill a room with people. At that point, it was 24 people and teach them for three days how to be in a trainer in, in learning, uh, how, to, how to teach people to things in the technology and learning area. And the reason I did that, Jewel, I did the math because if I could get maybe $1,000 in three days, I could get $24,000 from, from people in that room. Now, I didn't start at 1,000. I started probably closer to 500. But um, I realized that events were going to be the way that I ran my business. And so first I did seminars. And um, I had a pretty good business. And by that point, I had five people working for me just you know, handling people who wanted to register. Now, here was the next thing that happened. It was interesting. I was renting a mailing list, you know, from a big magazine that did a big conference. And I viewed it as win-win. I went to their conference. Uh, I, I bought a booth there. And then um, 
I sent people to go to their conference, and then I did my seminars in the field that their conference was about, learning and technology. And one day I called up, I said, hey, I want to rent my 100,000 names again, a big check. We're not going to rent you anymore because you are our competitor. I said, how can I? I knew that was coming. <laughs> You're not my competitor. I actually like going to you. I send people there, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to rent you. I said, okay, then look to your left and look to your right because I'm going to actually put those people out of work. I'm going to start a conference and compete with yours. And so now I said, wow, if I could get 24 people to pay me $1,000, what if I put it in a hotel and I got 1,000 people to pay me? Uh, and, but I, I'm not going to do it the boring way. I'm going to bring entertainment in, and I'm going to do it at Walt Disney, and I'm going to have singers. And I was, and I will tell you, Jewel, that that year, my conference had twice as many people as theirs did. And, oh, they're uh, and then they got even more mad at me because I did so. so <laughs> I well. imagine so. <laughs> and I sold booths and I loved doing it. And then they said, well, you're, you're, you're not doing this right and the vendors don't know which one to go to. I said, well, we could make it really simple. I'll do my next conference the same time as yours and let's see who wins. Ooh. Tough. I won. Um, and uh, and then what's happened over the years is that I became sort of the, um, the gatherer of people in the learning and development field. And it got built up and became a wonderful, wonderful business. And I then over time built and sold my conference. And then I built another conference and another conference. And so uh, I've been in the field 47 years. And, um, but I'm still doing what I loved, which was those three things and the passion that you can bring people together now digitally or physically in a room. And that was, uh, that was the story of how I grew my business. You know, there's so much that you said that has my mind just going crazy. Uh, and, and it makes me think about, so the, the something I wrote about in my book, Three Sides of Every Crisis, is the, the theories of blue ocean, red ocean, and fast seconds, which sounds like very big, you know, business theories, but it's kind of common sense. Blue ocean means wide open. You can swim in it. There's not a lot of competition. And red ocean is red. You know, it's red because it's a blood sport. You know, shark infested water. So you got to be careful because there's a lot of competition. Whereas Fast Second is like, watch what the competition is doing, lay back, learn from them, and then you master it. And I just heard you walk through those steps, you know. <laughs> you know, because you any good theory, Jewel, you know this, any good theory is sort of organic. You know, it, it, it's the way the world is. You know, and uh, I ran my businesses, I run my business organically. You know, you uh, you adapt to what's there. You listen to people. You figure out. And the other thing I had to figure out is what did I do when I got bored with doing something? Because I got bored at some point in going around and teaching that three-day seminar. So the conferences were good. And occasionally I got a little right. bored with doing the conference, so I sold it. And And the people that bought it, sometimes needed to tell me, well, let's, you know, I, they didn't want to continue it. So I started over again, you know, but being bored and listening to your energy is really important so that you are right in the sharp place in your spirit. Right. And you remain authentic to yourself. So let's break that down, that journey down a little bit. So when you transitioned from the solopreneur, when you were on your own with this concept, this this passion for how you were going to actually exercise and touch those three areas. And you got to a place where you had people working for you. What did you do to convince people that what you were offering was a value add for them and the people who would participate in your programs? Well, well, first of all, remember, I remembered what the women who fired me told me was I wasn't going to be very good as an employee. Which may, may may have meant I may not have been perfect as a manager either, and I would say that was never the sweetest spot in my in my in my world. <laughs> but what I learned and what I was actually uh, was very good at was uh, sharing the passion, 
um, being a generous employer. And generosity is not just money. Generosity is inviting people into your excitement. Um, and um, also, I re realized early on, and I think I always had it, that part of being successful as an entrepreneur, particularly as a solo, is you got to be a good storyteller. You have to be able to tell your story. And that That's might fine. be telling the, your story in a brochure, telling your story on a web page, telling your story on a video, telling your story in front of a group of people. And I came from a family of good storytellers. So I, I brought that in. And I, I became better at it because storytelling is a skill like anything else that you have to work on and improve to get really good at. Yeah. yeah. It's true. You've got to exercise those muscles. That reminds me of a funny um, story my mom tells all the time. When I was a young girl, I'm my mother's only child. And I used to talk so much. I always had something to say, something to share. And she used to say to me, okay, Jewel, I'll give you a quarter if you be quiet for five minutes. And three minutes into the time, I say, wait, mommy, time out, time out. I just have one thing to say because I love telling stories. And then here it is. I wind up in this space, which worked perfectly for me. And my mother said, I'm so glad you found something that paid you for what you did so well. <laughs> But you see, it's very interesting. If you go to our business schools, and I've taught courses at Wharton, UPenn, and other universities around the world, uh, our business students mistakenly believe that the skill they need is how to run a really good spreadsheet uh, yep. and how to figure out how big their company will be in 10 years. Uh, and those are interesting things to know, but the really, really interesting piece is how do I actually tell my story, engage people? And when you tell your story, if you're a good storyteller, you're a listener as well as a speaker. And the more you, you tell and you listen, you change what you did. So I have over, over the years, I've kept evolving what I do when the world, i.e. the pandemic, or the marketplace. Now there are tons of conferences around the world. Uh, the society changes, or bluntly, I change. Where you know, mm -hmm. hey, I'd rather do more of this or less of that, and 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 the like. That's a very good point, and it's a it's a very interesting point as well because solopreneurs or anyone who's in business often talk about what they're challenged with. Right? It's the startup and the capital piece. Um, yeah. They always. Yeah, the capital piece is always a challenge for them. So at what point in your in building your business did capital no longer become your challenge and how did that happen? Well, you know, it's funny, even though I'm obviously a privileged person of the first world, okay? Uh, I, 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 that's not how I was as a business person uh, because I didn't have a lot of money in the bank. You know, I had my ideas. I knew how to operate my computer. Uh, and I was somewhat connected to people, but I wasn't wealthy. Uh, so when I started, I started in a uh, close to zero capital way. You know, I started to think about how could I do things? So I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a workshop that I did slightly different than this training workshop, but it was, it was a workshop on teaching people how to be facilitators in a group. And I decided that the way I could do it is that I could offer it and have it hosted by YWCAs. So I made a deal. I'll come, I'll do it at your Y, you can send six people, give me a space to do it in, and give me the names of other not-for-profits in your area, and I'll charge them. And so I could do it and with zero capital. You know, and uh, when they registered, I got the money and I paid for my ticket. Um, so all along in life, I've approached things not using traditional dollar or whatever your currency is, capital. The capital that I had was my creativity and my, my capital was my connections and my capital was in not mourning what I could not do, meaning... Mm. Uh, 
Mm, you know, somebody called me up good. and said, "Do you?" One time, I had a conference. Do you want to take an ad in the in the New York Times for that conference in New York? Well, how much was it? it was fifty six thousand dollars for the ad? I said, <laughs> "No, your profit." But I had a great conversation with the person, and I told them what I was doing. And sure enough, about ten days later, a reporter from the New York Times did a story about what I was doing. And boy, it got way more impact than my $50,000 ad that I couldn't afford. So yeah, uh, yeah you got to be scrappy. You know, you got to be scrappy and you've got to try to do things. I mean, uh, one of the, the real phrases that I love that I've learned from a number of people uh, along the way, including some of the mentors at Apple, is do the things that your competitor could never dream about doing. Do the things that your competitor. So every now and then I'll do something and say, you know what? It would really annoy my competitor, but I think I'm going to give that away for free. What do you mean you're going to give it away for free? Well, I'm going to give it away for free. And I did that with events. I did that with meetings and not, not a phony, not like I'll give it away for free and then I'll hit you up for a lot of money. I'll just give it away for free. And right. sure enough, when that happens, it comes back to you. One it comes way back to another, you. It comes. So, yeah. so yeah. So, capital is nice, but I got to tell you, none of the people I mentioned at the beginning that I got to know had had capital when they started. They had an idea, they had guts, and they they figured they figured it out. And that's been true in the first world, the second world, the third world, and someday if I get to visit Mars, I bet it'll be true up there as well. <laughs> Well, make sure you send me a, po a postcard because that's not they on my very, short list. They have very, very colorful postcards in Mars. <laughs> but those are very important points because I often say that relationships are the new currency of business. And it's about being able to build the relationships. And there's a key thing. You said you were scrappy. And it sounds as if that has been something that's consistent from the point of being a solopreneur to you building your brand and selling your business and creating more properties, more, yeah. more conferences. Well, I'll tell a very personal story with this, Jewel, and we all have, I think, our, our tribe, you know? So I come from uh, the Jewish tribe, you know? And my people, my, 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 my parents, their grandparents and the like, uh, were often in societies where we weren't overly accepted. You know, and so uh, Jews in Europe weren't allowed to own stores, so they sold diamonds and jewelry and, and did things. So I grew up in an environment, once again, even though being a, a white person from a first world country, I was privileged. Mm -hmm. But personally, I didn't have a lot of privilege. In fact, I remember um, when I was going to go to high school, um, this person came and said, you could go to this school, this school, or this school, depending on if you're rich. And I said, what if I don't know if I'm rich? So I asked my parents, am I rich? And they said, well, I said, no, you're not. We're actually kind of poor. I said, I didn't realize that, you know, but I didn't because I had love. I had food. I had parents. I, you know, uh, but I actually think you need to look at your tribe's DNA. You know, and my tribe's DNA was that you um, you got what you could do by being, you know, dedicated and connected mm -hmm. and working relentlessly. And I do. I work a lot, not because I'm compulsive. I probably don't need to work at all anymore if I didn't want to. But, you know, if I stopped working, we could schedule my funeral for four days later, you know. So, uh, you know, but um, <laughs> it's that passion. How do you continue to be passionate about what you do? And I think that opens up a different area of thinking and understanding for entrepreneurs, because when you, when you talk about your tribe, when you think about where you authentically come from, those are some of the pillars and drivers that will allow you to build the business and sustain the business because it's organically a part of who you are. Yes. So even when your company's big, you, you still go back to what's inside that yep. drives you. Yep, yep. And, and yeah. I think you, you, when I mean tribe, it, there are lots of types of tribes. You know, it could be yes. your genetic tribe. It could be your geographic tribe. It could be a tribe, you know, everybody, you're a piano player or your, your tribe is you like to, you know, to fish or whatever that is. But 
if we think about our tribe, it's it's embedded in us. It's part of yeah. our uh, our passion and our DNA. And I think we have unfortunately, um, we don't often talk with pride about our tribe. Maybe because there, as we're certainly seeing in the U.S., lots of injustice around racial and other 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 arenas. Uh, but I've I've always loved being who I am. You know, I'm I'm a kid from European parents, born in New York. I'm Jewish. I live in Saratoga. I mean, I I actually own my heritage in that sense. It doesn't mean that I comply with what my parents might have wanted, but. I own that. I own that. I own what my what my tribe is and how it's contributed to me. And you, with you coming from New York and me too, I'm a Brooklyn-born girl, West mm-hmm. Indian and American roots. That that is part of your tribe story, you know. Oh. So that New York, <laughs> that New York thing, even though it's not a place I would go back and live and raise my child, it stays it it stays with you. Um, so I'm wondering. In talking about your tribe and your experiences and building from the solopreneur place to being this very successful businessman, when you met your greatest challenge, what was it and how did you get over it? Hmm. Um, I think one of my greatest challenges was uh, a company bought my business and they weren't totally truthful. This was many years ago about what they wanted to do with that business. They mm. uh, wanted me to come and run it as part of their, and they weren't totally truthful about what I was going to do. I mean, probably the most interesting thing was I ran a business that was not spreadsheet built, and then I sold it to them, meaning I understood I didn't lose money, I made money, but they sent this woman to sit with me my second day on the job as an employee. Remember, I'm not very good at that, okay? <laughs> And she literally said, I need the numbers of how much money we're going to take in in January and February. And I don't know. She said, we need to do it. I said, okay, well, I think at the end of the year we'll get to this. And so I said, make up a spreadsheet. Made up a spreadsheet. And then like seven days later, I got a note that we're behind on week one. I said, we made the numbers up, you know. But (laughs) I... Ultimately, if they had said, we want you to come and operate in a totally different way than you are, I wouldn't have sold in the company or I would have sold it and not gone there. And um, and I believe in the world of entrepreneurial that uh, in each instance when I've, I've been involved in selling a company, there are these moments of truth telling, you know, when you have to realize why they're buying you, why you're selling, what you will do or not do. And sometimes uh, things don't work out the way everybody said they would. Uh, but I, I, I got smart about that, which means I, whenever I've been in that situation, I accept that, you know, things could yeah. go differently than, than we wanted. And you have to have a good lawyer to make sure that your contracts protect you. Yeah. But more importantly, you have to have a good soul to realize that it's usually not personal. It's just they're doing what their corporate DNA said. And so I will tell you that in the world of corporations, a very large percent of acquisitions, particularly of companies that were founded by somebody, very often end up in a business divorce, you know, meaning uh, it ends up where um, it just sure. didn't work out the way people wanted. And that's Very true. that's an aha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and those are the lessons that you learn uh, along the way. And yeah. one lesson that I learned: uh, mentorship is so important. I learned that along my years of uh, twenty plus years in business. One of my mentors taught me. He said, "Always make sure you keep your two best friends close by: your yeah. attorney and your accountant." Yep, yep, yep. Right. So on yeah. to watch I, your I money remember- and and then you need that, and you need to know what you don't know. See, I think that's the other interesting thing. Um, mm. Whenever, and I haven't been in hiring roles a lot because I don't hire a lot of people, but I've been on boards of directors of companies. And inevitably, if I'm in a situation where we're looking to hire somebody, I actually say, I hear what you know. That's great, and I trust that you know that. Tell me what you don't know. 
And I said, I'm not holding it against you, but I'd rather know that you are, you're not good at public speaking. That's cool. We don't need you to be a public speaker, but don't surprise me that you're not. So I actually think it's really important for the entrepreneur to know what she do isn't good at either so she can learn it or b she can label that that's not what i'm good at and so i have a great lawyer i have an accountant we would never be friends we approach life so differently but he's amazing <laughs> because he keeps me from ever getting to trouble on my taxes because he's just a really conservative number person i need him you know and and so uh, that's part of what you need to do is you figure out how do you how do you find the people to complete you you know and and do the things yeah. that, that you're not good at it's the collaboration piece um that's what's really important i think for solopreneurs in this gig economy because we're going to see this real huge i think surge of one person enterprises and they need to understand that just because you're a solopreneur doesn't mean you're alone no it no. means that you've got to be smart about the partnerships that you create and and really work on how to collaborate to fill those voids that you talk about right. in terms of what is it that you don't know. And you need to be willing to be creative in the economics of what you do as a, as a single person. I, I remember I got a phone call hmm. way back, probably I was, I was 30. You know, I got a phone call from this company and they said, um, would you ever be able to come in and talk to us about how people use computers? We're a big mainframe company serving the advertising industry. I said, yeah, I think I could. And they wanted me to go during the summer when I was going to be away. And I wasn't doing a lot of work with big companies then. But they said, please come down. And I went down and I spent literally a couple hours with them. And we seemed to connect. And, uh, and then they said, would you come back and talk to like, 20 of our people and I said okay and we never talked about price you know I did I mean I you know I knew they were going to pay me but I never talked about price and then they said uh, give us an invoice and I said well what should I put on that invoice you know and uh, you know they gave me a number that was way bigger than I I thought I I, I would get that was a nice surprise it was nice you know well it evolved Jewel to where I was doing you know probably I was doing a hundred days a year uh working and thinking with them on stuff and it went on for years but I would tell you if I had walked in there and said well my contract for doing this is x y and z my bet is I never would have spent a moment there other than those first three days or three hours mm -hmm. in that first day. So I think some of what we have to do is to um, be organic about, about money. Don't let anybody take advantage of you. But right. don't let your right. definition be what you charge. Have your definition be by what you contribute, what you change. And then bluntly, let the marketplace decide. You know, let the marketplace and be honest about, no, I can't do it for that. Or you paid X to somebody else. I want to, you know, I remember the first time I was asked to speak at a big conference and they said, what do you charge? He said, who spoke there last year? And they gave me the names of the person. And I said, well, I know that person. I'll take what they got. And it was way more than I would have asked for. But that was allowing the marketplace to kind of right. be be my teacher in that process. That's a great example of how entrepreneurs can really tackle the pricing issue. Because mm -hmm. that's always a concern. What do I charge? How do I charge? And it's understanding your market. And what I really took from that was organically reading your client and the yeah. climate that you're in. Yeah. 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 Get and to get the to funny that. part is as a sole entrepreneur, you're different than your client in most instances because they are an employee of a company. So when they're paying you $100, $1,000, $10,000, or $100,000, it's their company's money. When right. you're getting it, it's your money. But, okay, uh, there still is this organic reading of saying, what is this person able to get to pay me? Um, yeah. What risk are they taking by hiring me? And so, 
I've done and I've encouraged entrepreneurs that I've mentored to say, go do the job and tell people, I, I would like to get X. But at the end of four days, if you didn't like what I did, don't pay me anything. Wow. Well, guess what? Yeah. You'll, you'll probably get it and you'll probably get more than, than that. But once again, there's a different model. And that's why I'm not a spreadsheet guy, even though my friend invented it. You know, I, oh, I, I'm, I'm down $100 on my income for this week. Well, I don't care about my income for this week. You know, I spent a little while with some people who drove taxis. And what they tell you is, don't worry about, did you make any money this hour? Don't worry about, did you make any money tonight? Worry about, did you do okay this month? Because that way you have a great month. And the other way, you probably have five days that are really good. And you have 20 days when you're miserable, you know. Uh, so look at the look at the larger picture. I love that advice because it also speaks to trusting yourself, trusting what you offer yeah. to the environment. Uh, and, and to me, that's a real you know value add when people talk about the ROI and what your value proposition and things of that nature. It is if you truly know what you bring to the table, once you let your work speak for itself, sometimes it speaks louder for you than you thought it, it could have you know, brought back to you financially. I love that. I absolutely love that. So you've done quite a few conferences over the years. Tell us about um, how did you come up with the concept for your conference? Hmm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my, I think what I did, remember, I, I was doing seminars and, you know, you do a seminar with 20 people. You've got to be you got to be ripe and ready to go. You have to be high energetic. It's good if they have um, a clean room to do it in, if their chairs are comfortable, if the food is good. And I would often on the night of the first night, if they were there for three nights, I would invite them and we would go out and get a meal together or have a drink. Uh, so when I expanded to a thousand people, and at one point I had 4,000 people at one of my conferences, I took the same philosophy there. You know, you're, you're, their, you're their host. And I found in myself, in addition to being a storyteller, that I was a producer. And I am now, I'm a producer of Broadway shows. But being a producer meant that I was going to walk into the experience and produce it. Like I was gonna create an environment where, you know, if you went to somebody's wedding, whether they spent a few dollars or an amazing amount, they would create what that wedding day was. Well, that was my job to create what a conference would be. Now, I looked at other conferences. I looked at what I didn't like at conferences. Um, I made a decision early on that people needed to talk to each other, not just listen. You know, I, I made a decision that being comfortable in how I dress was, was important to me. So you, you shape it along the way. And, uh, and, and then you have good partners. And I made a really big partnering decision to do all the big conferences I've done over the years at the Walt Disney World in Orlando. So I actually became the longest constant conference provider. There were ones who did many more than I did in a year. But every year I was in a conference at Orlando and I got, they were like family to me. I got to know the, the people that worked there and, uh, and they loved when I brought big stars in and I invited them all to come hear them perform and big speakers and um, you're a producer. And uh, it's a little bit between uh, you're a teacher and you're also running a little bit of a Broadway theater. And sometimes it's a little bit like the circus as well. You know, <laughs> it's got a little oh, bit of, of the craziness of a circus. Yeah, absolutely. When you're leading it, I, you know, sometimes I say, you know, leadership can be like, um, you know, you have to you have to change your outfits often, <laughs> given yeah, the circumstances yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> that, that you're in. So I imagine having held those conferences at that property over time, although it was organically created, that that also helped with strategy in terms of pricing. And tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about that. How that well, worked out. See, pricing to me is really simple. It's, you know, if, if I want somebody has a watermelon and I want to get their watermelon or they have, you know, a can of paint, you know, 
ultimately we have to figure out what is it worth to me to have it and what's it worth to them to give. So you have to do comparisons. You know, you have to look at, you know, what are people used to paying for that? Um, and then right. you have to look at, my goal always is that nobody ever feels like they got ripped off in any experience that I did. Certainly that they never felt they got ripped off financially, you know? Yeah. Um, and so once again, I've, I'm abundant. We gave them great food. We took them to Disney for a party at night. I brought world-class speakers like Michelle Obama and uh, uh, General Colin Powell in and the theater people from uh, the Jersey Boys and the like. But um, so when you do all of that stuff, people aren't necessarily figuring that you're $10 or $100 too much in that sense. Right. Uh, and, and once again, you don't get greedy. So their conferences were successful and pretty soon they were $6,000 to go to that. And that's not the world I want it to be in. I want it to be in where, where people uh -huh. in learning development could go to their boss and their boss would say yes. Now, over time, you get a reputation in a positive way. Oh, Maisie's doing, oh yeah, I, I like to send my people to Maisie's conference. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't know the name of the conference, they kind of knew me. So that became part yeah. of the puzzle there. Yes, we all we all know you. <laughs> thank you thank You've you, been you. such a contributor uh, to the to the L and D space. Tell me, how did you book some of those speakers? Um, how did well, you... with a checkbook, you know. Uh, no, no, it's serious. <laughs> that helps. That helps. It's a combination. You got to write a check, but you also have to uh, find your way and find connections. You know, you have to pick up the phone and reach out to them or reach out to their agent. Uh, you have to make them a proposition, a, a proposal that is really, I mean, I had one speaker, I'm not going to mention their name, but I really, really wanted them, but they were a, a TV broadcaster. And I mm. knew if, if, I, if it was a normal way, they would have to probably take off an extra day to fly down, give the speech, fly back. So I took a deep breath and I added $15,000 to my budget and I flew them in a private jet from New York to Orlando. But guess what? They came and they loved it. And I've stayed in touch with them after that. So you have to make it attractive for the people to be there. And, uh, and then you have to treat them with respect and let them have some fun and, um, and it's contagious in that sense. Uh, and by the way, there were some people who said no. And the flip is true. There were people who uh, wanted me to hire them. And I go, nah, you know, because um, I've looked and seen them to not be, um, not be what they say they were, you know? So it's, it's mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you, you, have to have, you have to be a, a parent in a way for the people coming to your conference to protect them from, you know, I don't want somebody coming who's just trying to sell their their stuff. You know, everything is about pushing their next book or hiring them as a consultant or, or somebody who puts down other people. You know, I don't care what system you're using, but they're horrible, use my, use my system. Oh, yeah. And I'm so I, glad you mentioned that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you a little secret I haven't told people, but sometimes you hire somebody and they're not that good. Well, I was hiring somebody way earlier than this. It was like 20 plus years ago. And they were coming in by satellite. And they were very well known in the in the field of documentation and knowledge. And I had actually heard them speak at a small conference and I loved them. But maybe it's because they were coming by satellite. I don't know. They were horrible, Jewel. They were horrible. And I had booked them to be on for an hour. And after seven minutes, I walked over to the AV guy and I said, Move the dish so we lose the signal. <laughs> I go, oh no, what's happening? Oh, I'm so sorry. And I called up three people on stage who had read their book. And we said, well, we lost them. Let's talk about, and, and I paid them their fee. And to this day, if they watch it, maybe they'll, they don't know that I moved the satellite, but I was willing <laughs> to protect the people coming to my event. And I was willing to protect my own reputation in that. Yes. Yeah. That, that is such a great 
story. I absolutely love that story because it speaks to what you're willing to do to protect your brand. And solopreneurs have to remember that. Well, all entrepreneurs have to remember that because especially when you're small, people are buying you. Yep. 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 They are and buying, they're buying you. your skill and they're yes. buying your code of life, your code of conduct and yes. how you how you are. You know, I used to when I did those seminars at the beginning, I always brought a couple hundred dollars in cash with me and I was charging I had maybe five hundred dollars to come at that point. <laughs> and probably once, maybe every month, you'd be somebody sitting there and they just didn't look happy. So I go, I so say, are you OK? And almost always it's my manager told me I had to attend. I don't know why I have to attend. I don't really like doing this job with the computers. I said, well, let's fix it. And I said, come with me. And I find out they usually were local, so it was easier, but maybe they flew there. I reached into my pocket and I took out $500 of cash, handed it to them and said, I'll call your manager. Here's your money back. And do you want to know? Probably six or seven of them are still good colleagues of mine. Who some of them who who said, you know what, if you're willing to pay me, it must be good. I'll stay, you know, uh, and other people who came back another time. But you have to be willing to um, be part of that that mix, you know, and it, it was very impressive for people when they saw me, you know, giving the money back, so because nice. why would I want their money if they didn't value it, you know? It's true. And, the, you know, just a few people can create, say, just, just a groundswell of bad news and bad press and, you know, yep. uh, really damage your, your reputation. So um, I know how much you have given to the world of L&D, right, and our ability to connect and to stretch our minds and thinking about e-learning. Aside from the business of it, what else do you feel like you've, you've contributed? Well, I think that I think I've been able to help change what conferences are, not just in our field, but other fields. I think I've, uh, because I'm also a Broadway producer, I've brought some Broadway into uh, learning and knowledge. That's been a piece of what I've done. Uh, and um, I've supported the growth of a lot of younger people in this field. I've run a number mm -hmm. of programs, one I call 30 Under 30, the other one I called Rising Leaders where you find people in their early stage of the career, sometimes by age, you know, under 30, or sometimes they've only been in the field, and you, um, you invest your time and energy in them. Um, and then in other cases, I think what, what I think I've contributed along the way is not that I have the good answers, but I have the good questions. You know, I think mm. I'm a better question asker than I'm the answerer. You know, you know that you're asking me questions, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, that's part of storytelling. Sometimes the best storyteller doesn't have to tell the story. They have to ask the question and walk away and people are going to tell the story. No matter how successful or no matter how well known or no matter uh, what your role is, um, you're just people. And, and the day you stop connecting, the day you stop becoming accessible to people, um, that's kind of sad. It's been another great time spent with you. Thanks for joining this episode of the Solopreneur Journey with expat entrepreneur Jewel Daniels, where we love being your ear candy. Let us hear from you by dropping a note at www.thesolopreneurjourney.net. Remember, you may be working on your single shingle enterprise, but you're not alone. See you next time when we push boundaries to build beyond just business.